Well, I apologize that I missed the sound check this morning, but I think we're online now, right? We can all hear me, I hope. Maybe that, maybe some of you don't want to hear, I don't know. <laughs> so in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells a pretty familiar story. Allow me to recount it to you. After determining that the law is summed up by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and that loving your neighbor as yourself, a young, a young lawyer asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds by, by telling him a story. He says, well, you see, there's a man, and he's going down a road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell in among robbers. Now, when I was younger, I loved stories with robbers, right? That means it's a good story. Good stories got to have robbers in it. Cops and robbers, I wanted to be a robber. So robbers, we know it's going to be a good story from the start. So he says he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell in among robbers. And these robbers beat him and stripped him, and they left him for dead. A little later, a priest came down the same road. and He saw the beaten man. He passed by on the other side of the road because he was far too important to consider him. Likewise, a, a Levite, a little less of a religious type than a priest, uh, comes by and he sees the man. Perhaps he looks down and sees his swollen and distorted face. Perhaps he looked into his tear-filled eyes and saw the pain there. But still, the Levite passed by on the other side of the road. Now a Samaritan came by to where the man was, and he saw him. The Samaritan has compassion on the beaten and bloodied man. He hurried to get his oil and his wine to begin restoring the man to health. Then he gets the man and he sets him on his own donkey. can't imagine that today. We don't have donkeys anymore. We have cars, right? Some of us are very particular if we have a nice vehicle about what goes in and what goes out. I've been there. I bought a new car once and you weren't allowed to eat in it or drink in it. And my wife would do both of those things when I wasn't looking. But, but I didn't want those things to happen in there. So certainly this guy could look up in the yellow pages at donkey service and have somebody else bring his donkey in. Or to, to put the stranger on that donkey rather than his own. But no. The Samaritan places the beaten and bloodied stranger on his own donkey and gets the mess everywhere. And he takes him to an inn. Then the next day, after perhaps staying in the same room and caring for the man throughout the night as he likely vomited and shook from the traumatic experience, he took out two silver coins and he told the innkeeper, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will pay back to you. Take care of him. Jesus then turns to the lawyer and he asks, who was the neighbor to the beaten man? And the lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus says, you go and do likewise. See, the Samaritan is an example of what loving our neighbor looks like. The good Samaritan bears the beaten man's burden as his own. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Galatians today. We're going to be in the book of Galatians chapter 5, 
And we're going to start at verse 25 and go through chapter 6, verse 5. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, I believe you can find it on the Pew Bible there on page 826. And the large numbers are going to be the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are going to be the verse numbers. And so before I read that particular section, uh, would you all bow your heads in prayer with me? Father, we thank you that Jesus is the true Good Samaritan. That when we were left for dead in our sins and content to stay there, that he didn't simply pass us by, but he took on flesh and became a man. And he lived a perfect life, the life that we should have lived. And he died a death in our place, the death that we deserve to die. He conquered death on our behalf. And he rose from the grave. We thank you that by placing our faith in him, we too can have everlasting life. Peace with God. Lord, we thank you that you are holy. And that you are loving and compassionate. And that you absorbed the cost of our sin. Father, pray that you would speak to us today. That you would thrill our hearts with the Bible. With your word. That they might skip a beat at being in the assembly this morning. Help us to hear and to be transformed more into your image that we might worship you and enjoy you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me read for you chapter 5. We just, to, to sum up a little bit, we just came off the fruit of the Spirit. We contrasted the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And both of those things kind of came under the banner of what Paul said in 13 through 15, where he talked about Christian freedom. And so he's kind of answering an implicit question in the text. What does Christian freedom look like? What does life in the Spirit look like? And so he told us that the fruit of the Spirit is different from the works of the flesh. And we worked through those things the last two weeks. And now we come up to verse 25, and he says this. If we live... By the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, unless you too are tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. So as we look at these verses this morning, we're going to set ourselves to answering two questions. We're going to boil it down to two questions. The first question is, how does the gospel, that's the good news of Jesus Christ, that he lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and that he rose from the grave, and that by faith in him we can have peace with God. How does the gospel impact how we see ourselves? How does the gospel impact our self-image? The second question is, how does the gospel impact how we treat others, how we interact 
with one another in community in the church. The big idea from the text today that I would like you to pick up on is that followers of Jesus will live life by the Spirit. They'll walk by the Spirit. They'll be led by the Spirit by repenting of conceit and by bearing one another's burdens. Followers of Jesus will live by the Spirit by repenting of conceit and by bearing one another's burdens. So let's start by talking about gospel self-image. We'll look at verses 25 and 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So Paul is again showing us that works of the flesh are contrast with works of the Spirit. Here he's pointing out conceit. A synonym for conceit might be pride. And St. Augustine once said that pride or conceit is pregnant with all other sins. It's the sin that gives birth to other sins. So what he's trying to say there is all of your sins can typically be traced back to conceit or pride. But let us define conceit before we get much further. It means to be boastful, to be falsely proud, to have an extraordinary high opinion of yourself. It means empty of honor. To be fixated on comparison. And I like this one. A deep insecurity leading to a need to prove our worth to ourselves and to others. Conceit is a deep insecurity that leads to a need to prove our, prove our worth to ourselves and to others. Paul then, uh, he, he wants to show us a little bit about how conceit is formed. He shows us two different rivers that kind of flow into the lake of conceit. Provoking and envying. Now, provoking can be thought of as a continual challenge aimed in the direction of others to prove that I'm the best, right? The, the person that is sure of his or her superiority looks down on the other is the one that provokes. I can do that better than you. Continually challenging. I look better than you do. Everyone, come see how good I look. Envying. Wants something that someone else has. Feels inferior and looks up at the other. I look terrible. I'm not as good as he is. I'm not as um, profound at at that as she is. Just not very good. See, both postures, that of provoking or superiority and envy or inferiority, are forms of conceit. In both cases, the approval or disapproval of others determines your worth and your attention is focused on you and how you feel. It's navel-gazing. It's gaining identity by beating and surpassing others or by not beating and surpassing others. Tim Keller puts it this way. The only difference between provoking or being superior and arrogant, that person, and the person that dwells on self-pity is that the inferior person has lost at the game and despairs about themselves and envies those that they see as winners. The superior person, on the other hand, feels as though they have, for the moment, won. And they continually compare themselves with others to check that they are still winning. Of course, 
Most of the time we are provoking or priding, being superior in one area and envying in another. You see, provoking and envying, superiority and inferiority may seem like opposites, but they are both children of conceit. They're made up of the same stuff. Both are self-absorbed. And both want to gain glory for themselves. So here's the the simple question. If we're to not become conceited, to not be priding, to not be self-pitying, how does your conceit show up in your relationships? Do you pick arguments with people? Or are you completely avoiding confrontation? How do you react when you're criticized? You see, only the gospel will enable us to be neither self-confident nor self-disdaining. See, the gospel empowers us to be both bold and humble at the same time because it tells us that we are more wicked and sinful than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. Gospel humility concerns itself not with what you think about me or what I think about me, but what Jesus thinks about me. And he has called me son. He has called you son. He has called you daughter. It's an identity that is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis again helps us to understand humility when he says it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's being other-oriented. It's the opposite of conceit. Christians, when we are living by the Spirit, we will have the right idea of our self-image. We will see ourselves rightly, with balance. We'll see ourselves in light of the gospel. We'll indeed be able to repent of our conceit and spend ourselves not on ourselves, but on bringing glory to our Savior. So how does the gospel impact how we see ourselves? It enables a sober judgment of ourselves, makes us recognize our deep need for Christ, and leads us to repentance of things like conceit. It also leads us to joy in Christ, That he has freed us from the need to prove our worth or make ourselves acceptable on anything in this world. That we can simply identify with Jesus. Indeed, sons and daughters in Christ know they have nothing that they didn't receive. They exult in what God has given. It enables us to think of ourselves less and others more. All right, we're on to the second question now. How does the gospel affect how we treat others? How does the gospel affect how we treat others? We're going to be in 6 verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Before we do this, let's look at a couple terms and identify them and then talk about this particular verse. The first one is brothers. This, Paul, I think Paul uses this word intentionally here. Uh, you might not think much of it. He kind of uses it like a comma sometimes. But I think he does it intentionally to point us back to kind of the banner verse in 13, 
through 15, when he says, For freedom we were, I'm sorry, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Secondly, it says caught in transgression is a phrase. This terminology, this phrase here means to be taken unaware, to be in a trap without knowing. The idea is that somebody is caught in a sin. Now, commentators disagree. Some think that it's a pattern of sin in someone's life that Paul's referring to here. And others think that perhaps it's just kind of an outlier, like a one-time deal. Uh, I kind of think maybe it's both. That, that sin needs to be addressed and that it cannot be allowed to remain in our lives if we are to become in practice what God has declared us to be in truth. Then he says, you who are spiritual. Does he mean like some super-Christians? Like, all right, who is spiritual that can restore the brother or sister? We better go find somebody that's really really holy, and then they can go and and do this work and call out somebody's sin and say, hey, you need to repent, some super Christian. Well, no, that's not who's spiritual. Those who are spiritual in this text are those that are led by the Spirit, those that are in Christ, those that are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, not those that are as Christmas trees, if you remember last week, with no real fruit. Not those that are just pretending to be Christians, that are just adorning themselves, but are actually very dead. It's those that are alive in Christ. He says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. I think John 8 illustrates this well. See, some Pharisees bring to Jesus a woman that they caught in the act of adultery. And we kind of had this, this came up in Sunday school somehow just by chance. And uh, I said, I don't really know how you catch a woman in the act of adultery. I don't know what you're doing uh, to, to try and catch somebody in the act. Uh, uh, and for my generation, there was a show on TV called Cheaters where they used to like follow around people they suspected of cheating with a video camera. And then it was, it was a whole TV thing. Um, maybe you don't know that one. But anyhow, maybe I thought maybe it was like an episode of Cheaters. They're trying to catch this woman in the act of sinning. So anyhow, they catch her and they bring her to Jesus and the law required that such a woman would be stoned to death. And so they come to Jesus and they're like, all right, we caught her in adultery. Let's stone her. Let's get the stoning started. Justice now. And instead of replying, Jesus just kind of bends down and he starts to write something in the ground. The Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote in the ground. I think it might be pretty interesting. And then those that had brought the woman, they continue to persist and they ask him again to stone her. Jesus stands up and he says, Let he who is without sin among you cast the first stone. Again, he returns to writing in the ground, and then one by one, each of the people walk away from the scene until only there are two left. And imagine Jesus turning to the woman and saying, Who of your accusers is left? She replies, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, sin no more. See, my point here is that Jesus is not interested in destroying the woman, but in helping her, in restoring her to right relationship with God. 
He's not interested in comparing himself with a woman caught in sin. He doesn't want to stone her to say, I'm better than you. He wants her to be right with God. So he doesn't seek to destroy, he seeks to help her. He doesn't want to tear her down, but to help mend her life. See, I've said repetitively that sin is building the meaning of your life on anything other than Jesus Christ. And when we do that, because it's antithetical to God's design for prospering and for flourishing, we will ultimately find ourselves in despair, unsatisfied. It's only when we build the meaning of our life on Christ and follow God's good design that we'll flourish. Jesus wants this woman to flourish. Paul wants the church to flourish. That's why he writes in verse 1 of chapter 6 here, if anyone's caught in sin, you who have the Holy Spirit, you who call yourself Christians, should restore him. It's as if somebody are standing on a train track and a train's about to hit them. And you were to stand idly by and go, no big deal. I don't want to deal with the conflict of asking them to get off the train tracks. That's not loving. That's not loving to avoid conflict because you're afraid of offending someone. And allow them to be continually walking in sin. No, love will confront but it's not going to confront like the Pharisees did. It's not dragging the woman in adultery before Jesus and going stone her. It's not a self-righteous condemning. No, it's in the spirit of gentleness. Its goal is restoration. After all, the word restore here means to repair, to put together, to mend. In the Old Testament, it's used of rebuilding walls. In Mark chapter 1, it's used of Fixing the netting that the fisherman had thrown to catch fish, right? It's mending it. It's fixing it. It was also used in ancient times as a term that meant to reset a dislocated bone. See, to put the bone back brings pain. But it's a healing pain. Confrontation with our friends and indeed in in our family here can be very painful. But it's necessary for healing. It's not good to let uh, your brothers and sisters go around on a bum knee or a bum leg. You want to help them to restore it gently. Paul says, by keeping watch on yourself, unless you too be tempted. I think this is very interesting because it kind of points back to the conceit factor a little bit. It's kind of saying, hey, when you restore somebody, don't go self-righteously. I would never commit this sin. And so you you need to get right with God and be condescending. No, take lot of your own life because you have sin as well. Go gently knowing that you are more wicked than you ever dared believe and more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. Be both bold and humble with the goal of restoration. Because love does not overlook sin and pretend that it's not there so that everybody can hold hands and pretend that there's harmony. That's Christmas tree Christianity. No, we're after the real thing. We're after real gospel fruit that serves one another in love, that confronts sin, restores us to right relationship with God and with gentleness, that urges one another towards holiness, towards Christ-likeness. 
Because that's where true joy is found. Is as we become more and more like Jesus Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's a hard question this morning. Is there somebody you know caught in a transgression? Who do you need to confront gently? And have you kept watch on yourself? Where is your sin that you need to be restored from? Verse 2, and I think this verse is what I would call the hinge verse of this little pericope that we're looking at. I think the whole thing, the whole door of this verse swings on this hinge. All right, it's really important because I think it looks both back to what we've talked about when we talked about conceit and finding our self-image in Christ rather than ourselves. And as we think about how we interact in relationships and restore one another. Indeed, I think this sums up the law of Christ. It sums up what it means to love and serve our neighbor. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. Burdens. To bear. This means to carry. To endure something unpleasant or difficult. See, the law of Christ is the law of loving our neighbor. That means to endure hardship together. To work through physical and spiritual difficulties in life together. It means to do life together. You see, bearing one another's burdens... This is the supreme imitation of Jesus Christ who on the cross bore the penalty for our sins. Who received our worries. Who took our pains. And who now wipes our tears. It's an imitation of the one who came and took away the sin of the world and conquered death. Burden bearing is having the mind of Christ Jesus that Philippians 2 says is ours when we have faith in Him. It's a mind that considers others more significant than ourselves. It's other-oriented. It's loving of neighbor. It's not the priest or the Levite. It's the good Samaritan. See, burden-bearing also requires us to be close to one another, right? It requires that we can step in under the weight and put some of it on our own shoulders. And practically, it requires us to know one another a little bit. Maybe you think of it, I tried to struggle to think of like something you lift together. Maybe it's a two-man lift of a couch. It's a lot easier with two than it is with one. Or I thought maybe like bench pressing, you have a spotter, and sometimes you can't lift that weight a lot of times if you're like me. It's good to have that spotter there to help you get the weight the rest of the way up, set it on the rack. It's sharing the load. I think that it's both physical and spiritual here. What I mean by that is if there's someone among us that needs clothing or food, that we would bear that burden, that we would provide food and clothing. More and you hear, obviously, is the spiritual aspect. There's someone in sin, but we would bear that load with them and hope to gently walk through restoration with them as we point them to Jesus. I also want to point two things out here. Paul assumes two things. Seems one, that we all have burdens. To pretend that you don't have a burden this morning is to lie. That is an unreality. And it's a sign of hypocrisy and of Christmas tree 
Christianity. We all have burdens. And then secondly, God doesn't expect us to deal with these burdens on our own. He expects us to share the load, to walk together in Jesus Christ. So let's get really, really practical. Because it's one thing for me to preach and try to open up the word and give you the sense of what Paul is saying here. And it's another thing to allow it to transform our lives. This week, find an accountability partner. And what I mean by that is find someone to walk through life with you that will bear your burdens. Do as James 5.16 tells us. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, restored. Commit to meeting regularly, whether via a phone conversation or an email or maybe you get an excuse to have lunch together. Hold one another accountable to being like Christ. Ask the hard questions. How is your struggle with anxiety, with fear? Are you still viewing pornography? How is your marriage? How are you doing with gossip and lying? How are you doing with envy? Are you still being lazy? Are you overworking? How are your times with the Lord? Are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? Are you living life in God's presence? This week, I hope that you would start this practice of getting with at least one other person and urging each other towards holiness, towards Christ-likeness, towards bearing real fruit. Verse 3 through 5. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. I'm going to give you the New Living Translation of this because I think it clears up some muddied waters. It says, You think you are too important to help someone. You are only fooling yourself. You're not that important. Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. You see, again, this is pointing back to the conceit that we brought up earlier. God doesn't grade on a curve, right? (laughs) You can always find somebody that you're doing better than. And typically, you can find somebody that you're doing worse than as well. God doesn't grade on a curve. If you want to compare yourself to someone, compare yourself to Jesus Christ so that you might walk in humility. And then he says in verse 4 that you can boast in your work. Well, it means I think that you can have a satisfaction of a job well done there. Um, I don't think that he's speaking in any way of a conceit or pride. And if you want to know what Paul's perception on boasting is, you can just scroll down in chapter 6 there to verse 14. Uh, he He says this, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He boasts in Christ alone. That's the Christian's boast. Not in his superiority or in his inferiority, in his conceited self, but in Christ alone, who has done the good work, who has lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. 
We boast in Christ alone because we know that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe and more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Verse 5. We are responsible for our own load. Ultimately, I like to think of it as our own backpack. Uh, maybe think of it like a military group, right? They get sent out on a particular objective, and they're all held responsible for accomplishing that objective. And then they come back into headquarters, and they each have their own individual, like, assigned stuff. And so, like, you're going to be held responsible for your own boots. Maybe you took a backpack with you. You're responsible for your own backpack. So together, they're responsible communally for the burden of the objective, but individually for their own stuff, their own things. As a Tolkien fan, I love The Lord of the Rings, and so at any point I can use an illustration from it or attempt to, I'll try. And so uh, if you are familiar with Lord of the Rings, uh, Frodo has an extraordinary burden to bear. He carries a ring. And he carries this ring many, many miles across foreign lands and in the face of great danger. And in the final scenes of the book, Frodo is so weighed down by this burden, he cannot stand. His face is covered with soot. And he seems ready to lay down and die. His faithful friend Sam is there, though. He's traveled along with him. He looks up at the mountain that they're about to try and climb. And tears flood his eyes. And he attempts to catch his breath. The sky is black and filled with darkness as a backdrop. It seems the journey is about to come to a terrible end. Sam, cradling the broken Frodo in his arms, asks, Do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? It'll be spring soon, and the orchards will be in blossom, and the birds will be nesting in the hazel thicket, and they'll be sowing summer barley in the lower fields and eating the first of the strawberries with cream. Do you remember the taste of strawberries? And Frodo looks up at him and says, No, Sam, I can't recall the taste of food, nor the sound of water, nor the touch of grass. I'm naked in the dark, with no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I can see him with my waking eyes. And Sam says, then let us be rid of it, once and for all. Come on, Mr. Frodo. I can't carry the ring, that's the burden, for you. But I can carry you. He begins to put Frodo over his shoulder and ascends the mountain. See, Sam helps Frodo bear the burden throughout the story. And even carries him to the top of the mountain. But it is Frodo who is ultimately responsible for the ring he carries. You see, we are ultimately responsible for our own deeds. But we must make the journey through life together. At times we must carry one another. Yet at the same time, know that indeed we will stand before the judgment of God and give an account for our individual actions. Sin has indeed torn this world apart. There is suffering. There is evil. It's not what it's supposed to be. But the truly spiritual one will restore it as he has you and me. You see, he's carried us 
to the top of the mountain of judgment. And he has taken the darkness for us. And he has risen and called us forth into the light by the power of his Holy Spirit. He has changed our hearts. He has wakened us to our true home. He's roused within us the desire for God. He's cultivated the desire to taste strawberries and cream in the spring that is to come with his kingdom upon his return. Yes, evil is in the world now. Suffering is in the world now. And the winter seems long. The darkness seems great. But spring is on the horizon, as is the sun. Spring is coming soon. And if we are in Christ, we know that He has borne the burden of our sin. And we look forward to that life together with God. The King is returning. And we will stand before Him. Does He have your burdens? Have you cast your burdens on Christ? Christian, if you have, rejoice! Confess your sins anew and delight in that good news that Christ has died the death you should have died. And that He has taken your burden, that you have taken His grace, and that you are made alive in Him. Non-Christian, those of us in here that may be playing at the Christian game, you might want to evaluate your own life. Do you have your burdens? Give them to Christ this morning. He became a curse for us that we might inherit the blessing of God. Life together with Him. That we might imitate Him until His return by bearing the burdens of others as He has borne our burdens. His yoke is easy, and His burden is light. Do you know Him this morning? The challenge from Paul this morning is to live by the Holy Spirit, by repenting of our conceit, and by bearing one another's burdens. In other words, imitate Jesus. 